0: SunCast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. SunCast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey, Warriors. I just wanted to chime in here real quick at the beginning to remind you that we at SunCast are prioritizing inclusion and diversity among our guests. As such, this being Women's History Month, we are going to be featuring all female SunCast guests for the month of March. Hope you enjoy and look forward to your feedback, even criticism. <laughs> look forward to your communication. Here we go. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome to a new week, Solar Warrior. Here we go, this is Two for Tuesday. Whether that's a Tactical Tuesday or just content from one of our many live events like SPI Podcast Lounge, this is going to be a short-form conversation, typically, with subject matter experts designed to give you the practical tools, tips, and advice for building your solar business or career. And grow with us here on Suncast, as I know you will. I'm so glad that you've decided to join us again and level up your game. Remember... You can always find the resources and learn more about today's guests and recommendations in the blog at mysuncast.com. So get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior. Here we go with another powerful conversation on Suncast. And this is the Podcast
1: Lounge, sponsored by Radiant Reet and produced by Suncast Media. I'm Christian Rosalind, the U.S. Editor at PV Magazine, and we are taking over the Podcast Lounge. I'm joined here by Managing Editor.
2: Managing Editor, Erica Johnson, PV Magazine, and we are very excited to be here at Solar Power International Smart Energy Week 2019 in
1: Salt Lake City. That's great. And, 180 degrees.
2: and we are joined today by Erica Myers at Smart Electric Power Alliance, SEPA, and we're going to be talking today about distribution system infrastructure and planning to support optimized charging in electric vehicles.
1: And it's September 26th, a little after 10 a.m.
2: So, Erica, can you talk to us a little bit about the trends that are taking place right now within the EV infrastructure uh, space? Sure. So... At a really high level, there's a lot going on in electric vehicles,
3: I'm sure a lot of the folks here have been listening to the new content that we've had. They may have driven some cars that are out front. Uh, They may have seen some of of our exhibitors, And we're really excited to bring more electric vehicle content to the show. And we plan to do more of that even next year. Uh, We see that electric vehicles are really tied in closely with what the folks here at the show are trying to accomplish. When we think about clean energy integration, uh, when we think about grid modernization and how we integrate all these different distributed energy resources into the modern grid, uh, vehicles are absolutely part of that equation. And we see electric vehicles as a way to help uh, integrate even more clean energy. So if we can manage the charging in a way that allows us to increase the amount of solar or wind that goes into our system, uh, that would be good for everybody here. So when we think about electric vehicles, uh, it really is uh, largely being induced by the lower cost of batteries. Uh, As we see cheaper and cheaper batteries, the cost proposition for buying an electric vehicle becomes even better for the consumer. It'll be at some point when we see fleets uh, taking over the space, especially. Um, Because fleets are largely driven on their bottom line, um, electric vehicles present an opportunity for them to outbeat their competitors. And so we see the the uptake of fleets as one of the bigger drivers. And especially when we think about distribution system infrastructure, the fleets could overwhelm our system if we're not being prepared today. And so we work with our electric utilities to help them understand what we're talking about when when we're talking about bringing on medium and heavy duty trucks in particular. The charging amount uh, for these cars could be anywhere from 350 kW per charge to over a megawatt. In fact, the experts in the field today are preparing for charging even at 4.5 megawatts per vehicle. This is an incredible amount of load that uh, we need to start preparing and thinking about how we're going to accommodate today so that we can keep costs down for the consumer and that we can all benefit from that new additional load.
1: You know, it's interesting this is Christian. Just It's interesting how you talk about fleets coming in later. If anything, it seems that the big action globally in terms of the electrification of transportation is coming via fleets more than individual choices to go out and buy an EV. Can you talk a little bit about that dynamic? Well, so light-duty, by and large, is overwhelmingly
3: more common right now in in the U.S. So we have about 1.3 million EVs on the road. Um, We only have about 3,000 fleet, medium and heavy-duty trucks, roughly. Um, The fleets, though, could quickly take over when we talk about battery prices. Again, it, it comes down to that bottom line. And uh, we've been seeing lots of orders. We've been seeing major announcements from all the major manufacturers for the medium and heavy duty space that they're introducing these new electric versions of their, their uh, models. Um, and so we see in the near term, um, most likely it'll be these shorter fixed route, medium and heavy duty trucks that'll be the first ones to hit the streets. Um, and then eventually we'll see maybe a transition to long haul trucking. The dynamics and the infrastructure that will be required to accommodate long haul trucking will be somewhat more challenging because we're gonna to have to talk about corridor charging and potentially in very rural parts of our country where there may not be existing infrastructure to accommodate such large loads. So what we see right now are the opportunities in urban and rural or you know, suburban areas where we have these you know, fixed route, we know exactly how many miles a day they're gonna be driving and then they can charge at a central depot.
2: And so what do you see is happening in this space right now as far as the development for these large-scale demand loads for bigger fleet vehicles? So when we see these major
3: announcements by Thor and Tesla and Freightliner, um, the vehicles that they'll be selling. In fact, just yes, uh, last week Amazon announced that they're buying 100,000 electric trucks wow. for their um, for their delivery services. So we see these big announcements, and then I have utilities calling me. Where are these vehicles going to show up? You know, are they going to come to my territory? And I have to tell them I don't I don't have that information. <laughs> um, but I, I do tell them, you know, what you need to do today to start thinking about the possibility of these fleets uh, showing up in your service territory is mapping out and understanding where those fleets are located, and. You know, looking at where your substations and transformers are in relation to those fleets and where there might be some existing constraints. If you know you do some back in the envelope calculations on the number of new vehicles that might go into those fleets, um, you could quickly understand where there might be some constraints. So we're encouraging our utilities to be proactive, reaching out to those fleets now to understand what they're thinking about and so then they can incorporate that into their distribution planning processes.
2: And are there specific utilities that are much more advanced than others taking a leading role and what kind of actions have they taken?
3: Yeah, a great example of one that's being very proactive on this right now is Encore, which is based in Texas. Um, They actually did develop a tool um, whereby they purchased some fleet information and then they overlaid it with their existing substation infrastructure. Um, And so then they were able to identify where there could be some potential impacts. Um, And then so now they're able to show their regulators hey, this is an issue that we need to get ahead of. How can you help us? How can we reduce the amount of time it takes to build a new substation? Um, If I have a fleet that's telling me they want to come in and bring in, you know, 50 trucks and I need a new substation that's connected to this transmission, it'll take me 18 months just to get regulatory approval to bring in that new transmission line. That doesn't include the amount of time it takes to construct the substation. So then on top of that, they also, um, you know, they want this list. They want to encourage this growth of electric vehicles in their service or It's good for them. Um, but their only solution at this point is to bring in a generator that runs on diesel. You know, And that's not going to help the bottom line for our environment or reduce emissions. Um, it's probably not something that the fleets want to do, but that's the solution they have. So how can we think about other alternatives to shoring up that need with things like battery storage?
1: Is that the only solution that they have, or is that the only solution that they're pursuing?
3: That's the solution that they've been using for other similar kinds of requests. Um, So they're in the oil and gas space. As you know, in Texas, there's a lot of that. And so when they have, for example, um, a drilling operation that needs a lot of power, then they know that it'll take a long time for them to deliver the power. That's that's what they've been using to help those sites get online
1: much faster. And yet we've seen solar being installed in West Texas to support oil and gas drilling operations. In fact, there's a fairly, Exxon signed a fairly large PPA because they realized that solar would be cheaper to Mm -hmm. power their drilling operations than the other options. Mm
0: -hmm. All right, Warriors. So you know that high demand charges can ruin a good commercial solar cell. But what if you could offer your clients 30% in demand-charge savings at a tenth, that's right, a tenth the cost of installing a battery? You can now do that with DemandX, a new demand-charge reduction software from Extensible Energy. Check it out at extensibleenergy.com and read the three case studies on how DemandX significantly reduced demand charges and increased ROI without batteries. As a Suncast listener, you can also get a free... Demand charge analysis at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. What do you have to lose? Crunch the numbers and see for yourself how extensible energy's inexpensive demand X software is a win win for you and your commercial solar clients. Hey, warrior, I bet you're already aware of CPS America's dominance in CNI with over 30% market share. But did you realize that they also shipped 500 megawatts of utility scale, 1500 volt inverters in 2019? Their unique design flexibility makes them the only company with the ability to eliminate DC combiners in the field and their DC to medium voltage balance of system bundle allows for as much as 40% reduction in costs, but wait, there's more with string inverters increasingly used in utility applications. CPS is infusing smart tech innovations to drive down costs along the value chain from DC generation to AC delivery. If you'd like to find out what other cost stack reduction CPS can bring to your C&I and utility projects, head to mysuncast.com forward slash CPS.
1: Certainly matters what time of day you charge, too, doesn't it?
3: It, it does. Yeah, absolutely. So that's kind of another thing to consider is helping fleets maybe change their charging patterns so that we can encourage them to charge off peak. So what can a utility offer in terms of a rate or maybe an incentive or participation in some sort of load management program whereby they get an incentive or payment for charging off peak? from a fleet perspective, this is a whole new ball game for them, right? They, they're usually seeing fleets as like, you know, something that costs money, not makes money. The, the calculation for them, and depending on what they do, is that they want to maximize the amount of profit. So the way that they're deploying their fleets is, is directly correlated to profit uh, generation. So what we're asking them to think about is, if we can compensate you for charging off peak, or maybe even providing that you know, battery capacity in a vehicle-to-grid scenario, you actually could make some money just on your fleet. So this is gonna be a whole new way for fleet managers to be thinking about how they're deploying vehicles, the value proposition will change. Um, so it is an interesting time.
2: Yeah, sure. And what are you seeing as far as um, the interconnection or rather the interrelatability of solar storage, electric vehicles. Obviously we're here at Smart Energy Week, and there's a lot of discussions taking place surrounding how these technologies are working together to build the grid stability of the future.
3: I absolutely think that all these things are connected. Um, All the things that we're talking about, the hardware and software vendors that are here on the show floor, the clean energy providers, the metering, you know, metering companies—all of these things are going to be connected in some way when we talk about integrating EVs into this larger ecosystem. Uh, the questions, you know, I have in the back of my brain is like, at what point will vehicles maybe be cheaper than stationary storage, from a battery capacity perspective and the services perspective? It, but there's also a lot of things that go along with that. So that storage, stationary storage is like dependable, you know, it's gonna show up, you don't have to work with a third party to make it happen. Uh, EVs, maybe, you know, it could be a cheaper option, but you're gonna to have to work with the consumer, right? right? They don't buy their vehicles for grid support services. So how do you get the consumer on board to want to participate and have the trust with the utility or third party that their vehicle will still be used and accessible to them for the purposes they bought it for. So it is a relationship building exercise and we have to start that level of trust today. And so we work with our utilities and thinking about how do you develop that customer relationship over a long period of time and then slowly through a lot of different programs get them to charge off peak adapt their charging behavior and then eventually getting to a point where they feel comfortable that a, a utility or third party could take energy
2: out of their car. Yeah, it's really interesting it as part of a discussion yesterday that was taking place and it's relating to, you know, really electric vehicles just being moving storage batteries that are stored with wheels and I think that this will definitely be one of the, the big trends and also challenges but really the solution that we face with grid infrastructure today.
1: So, you know, this is interesting talking about. I've heard a lot of talk about this potential for uh, vehicle to grid charging. Uh, but when I talk with experts like Chris Nelder at Rocky Mountain Institute, it seems as though there's another distinct possibility, which is having fast charging stations backed by large batteries, which can provide charging on demand, much like we have gas stations. And at the same time, when they're not charging, can be providing ancillary services and doing other things on the grid. What do you, what do you see as the potential for these sort of charging stations that include uh, fast charging and a big battery co-located
3: so when, I know Chris very well and um, and I know his positions on all of this as well and um So I think we need to think about the fact that not all applications will work for vehicle-to-grid. Fast charging is absolutely one of them, right? People go to a fast charger because they need to get charged really, really fast. They're not interested in having their load curtailed. They're not interested in having some energy taken off their car. So that application, absolutely, you'd have to think about another option, such as behind-the-meter storage um, that would back up that DC fast charger.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm asking yeah. about is the potential for combination of fast charging and a large battery. Mm-hmm. That, Because obviously, you know, the needs of fast charging are very different to yeah. be co-located as like the new gas station.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And I'm sure the battery manufacturers who are here at the show are looking into that option. Uh, we do, you know, I've heard over and over again, lots of people say batteries beget batteries as we have more and more vehicles with batteries, we'll need more and more stationary storage to back up those batteries. Uh, and I do think that there's something to that, um, especially when we t- we're in the early days of designing rates. Um, demand charges, which are you know in- incorporated into most commercial rates, are going to be a near-term challenge for those DC fast chargers, especially at low utilization levels. That'll change once we have more vehicles on the road using those chargers, but when there's low utilization, the demand charge is going to usurp the value that you can derive from that that particular charging station in terms of what income it's generating. Boy, for
1: a technology that could provide a lot of load for utilities, that seems like imposing demand charges and keeping those in those sorts of locations seems like an awfully poor strategy.
3: There's some work being done in California to look at demand charge holidays until the utilization rate of those chargers is, is uh, high enough so that you know the, the charging infrastructure providers can actually be in the in the black, um, and that seems to be a good stopgap solution. But I do agree that in the long run we need to think about our rate design a lot more comprehensively, and looking at transportation and e-mobility. How is that load different from other commercial applications by which we initially designed the rates? So there needs to be a rethinking about the entire rates system and how we design rates for transportation in the first place. So I think that's a conversation we're just starting to have. And um, it's going to take a lot of research and education to get there.
1: I think we at PV Magazine would agree with the need for widespread rate redesign. I think that we often have very different ideas than the utilities about what that new, those newly designed rates should look like in order to optimally support the energy transition instead of blocking it.
3: And maybe rates aren't the ultimate solution. Maybe it's some sort of transactive energy feature that gets us around all the complexities of of rates. Sure. Maybe it's something completely different.
1: You know, it's interesting. A few months ago when I was talking uh, with one of the former energy regulators in Rhode Island, he was suggesting that, you know, at some point we'll move to a future where the instantaneous nature of or the near instantaneous nature of the valuation fluctuations of electricity on the wholesale market will be translated down to the consumer level, and that you won't be paying for your electricity through any preset rate. You'll be paying for it by the five minute, by the minute, by what it costs, which I thought was a fascinating idea. I mean, I don't think a lot of uh, ratepayer advocates are necessarily going to be doing cartwheels over that one. But maybe is that the future that we're going towards?
3: So I didn't realize when I was coming in this podcast I'd be doing crystal ball exercise with y'all. I have no idea. I really don't uh, have really a good sense of what the future might look like. I think that sounds interesting. Maybe it would require us to think a little bit more about how consumers would hedge against some of the volatility and risk associated with real-time rates, um, and maybe using more storage and solar. Maybe that's the direction we're going anyway, and maybe that's like, you know, if you do need to tap into the grid, that's what it's going to cost. Uh, so. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun exercise to think about. And I love being in this industry because it's changing all the time. Yeah, I think awesome. all of
2: us have a bit of a crystal ball in front of us as far as where the <laughs> en- energy transition will take us.
1: <laughs> Certainly. That, By the way, I have to say, that was a, a really great saying there. Thank, I, I appreciate you passing that along. Great. Or batteries beget batteries.
2: Yeah, I like that, too. Yeah,
1: we're going to have to use that. We're now officially stealing. That.
2: We're stealing it. I stole it from <laughs> someone else, so go ahead.
0: <laughs> All right, that's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors. But I do hope that you'll check out the other Two for Tuesday episodes and let me know what you think of these shorter format discussions. You want more like this? You can find more than 200 episodes, resources, highlights from the discussions, along with social media links to each guest episode, book recommendations, and so much more over on the blog at mysuncast.com. And that's also where you'll find other ways to engage with the Suncast tribe, like subscribing to our weekly emails or even joining the exclusive inner circle we affectionately refer to as the Guild. If you're on Spotify or iTunes, I so appreciate your rating and review so that others can also find Suncast more easily. A special thank you to our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. Follow the links there for any offers we've discussed here today remember you are what you listen to thanks again for showing up solar warrior it's half the battle